Uh, we've been talking about prayer, and what we want to focus on today is hopeful prayer. So many times we're not hopeful in prayer. And the question really is, does prayer work for real people? Like, when we say pray, most of us conjure up things in our minds like monks and nuns and priests and all of these people who are more the professional prayers. But does prayer work for real people with real issues? And maybe you feel like uh, your prayer just kind of hits the ceiling. Maybe you feel like your prayer is just a message in the bottle. Maybe you think the whole thing is ridiculous. You're supposed to sit in a room and just utter words into existence, and the God of the universe is going to hear those and work with his sovereignty to somehow answer them. And maybe you're like, I don't know, Andy. I'm not sure this really works for real people. I think the the nuns, the monks, the priests, all those people, you know, I, I can see the mystics getting into this. But what does this mean to me? Does this actually change my life in any way? How does this work for me? So we're going to look at Hannah, and we're going to look at 1 Samuel, and we're going to read a lot of scripture today. And through Hannah, I want you to see three points about prayer. We'll get to each one, but I want you to be hopeful. First Samuel 1, there was a certain man of Ramathim, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Joraham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Epaphrathite. I did practice that sentence, by the way. I just want you to know. Uh, Even though you go to seminary, you still have to practice sentences like that right out of the gate. He had two wives. The name of the first one was Hannah. The name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, let's just stop right there. Here's the situation. The situation is Hannah, this little Hebrew girl who grew up And she always wanted a family, just like the little American girls do. And she wanted this family. She wanted to find somebody that she could fall in love with. And she did. She found this guy named Elkanah. We see his history here. And from what we can tell from his history, he's middle class, upper middle class kind of guy. He's got a history. He can recite off his fathers and his father's fathers and his great-grandfather. He knows all of those things. And she gets married into the family. But then somewhere along the way... She wants kids, and Elkanah wants kids too, and it's not working. And so you can just imagine the conversation. Elkanah somewhere saying to her, you know, I don't think it's, I don't think it's me. I think it's you. And, and you know, I've got to have kids. Who's going to work these fields? Who's going to help us? I mean, I, I know my father is Elihu and then Toru and Zuf. Like, is, this, is it all going to die with us? Is this line just over? Will I be the last one ever? Will there be no more mention of Elkanah after this? I've got to have kids. Have you met Penina? That, the girl that lives down the street? Hannah, I'm just saying, what if, what if we could bring her into our family? I mean, that's the conversation, right? Now, you might say, look, you might not be a believer, and you might say, well, what's the deal with two wives? I thought it's Adam and Eve. We're just supposed to be married to one person. Yes, true. Not everything that is recorded in Scripture does God endorse. And not everything that he allows does he approve of. 
So all the time, you'll see things in Scripture because this is recorded history. I mean, you don't start a sentence like sentence number one if it's not a historical document. This is not like some mystical, made-up mythology about a person named Hannah. It gives the line so that they can kind of locate where she is in the geography of that day. And so with that, they record the ugly things about families as well as the good things about families. And then here's the setting, verse three. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, just above Jerusalem, where he had two, son, where two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her though the Lord had closed her womb. Now you can see how the plot kind of thickens. Every year they travel to Shiloh, probably for the Feast of Tabernacles from what we can figure out, and they would take the whole family and they would load up and they would go to Shiloh to give sacrifices, to do this celebration, and every year the same conversation again and again. Penina, why don't you take the minivan? Uh, Hannah, do you mind driving separate? Can you, can you just do the chase car behind us? Penina has all these kids. And we, she's got sons and daughters, and they get there. Hey, we're going to need the block of rooms for Penina. Uh, Hannah, I'm sorry. Um, you know, you could just see it over and over again. That's the family dynamic. There are real people. And Hannah wanting kids. And Hannah wanting Elkanah to love her. But you could imagine, just like any Hebrew of that day, when he has some free time, Elkanah's gonna go play, throw his kids in the air, play the games in the streets with them, kick the ball around. All the attention goes to Penina. All the attention goes to those kids. So Elkanah tries to make up for it. They get to the point where they sacrifice, and when there's a sacrifice, if that bothers your sensitivities, I understand, but they used every part of the animal. This wasn't just a, we're gonna sacrifice this bull and then just be done with it and throw the carcass in the street. They used everything. And so they used the meat and they would take this meat and they would distribute it. And Elkanah tried to make it up to Hannah by saying, look, I'll give you more. That's, that just feels like salt in the wound, doesn't it? You don't have kids, but I'll give you two whoppers instead of one. <laughs> you, you don't have any other children, but I, you, know, you can have a little bit more meat. And the whole thing, the sympathy, uh, the well-meaning intention is so difficult. So we get to verse six. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. The devil portion just went silent. And again, these are real people, so you have to think about what it would have been like for her to be provoked. Situations like, Hannah, I know you got a double portion, but that's good. I've got so many kids, I'll eat their leftovers. Uh, Hannah, I know that you're here all alone every year. But, you know, Elkanah loves me more because I've got all of these kids. You're going to be completely forgotten, Hannah. See, Elkanah, from what we can tell, really loved Hannah. But Paniah was the one that gave him all of these kids. And now Hannah, and now Elkanah, all, all, everything's messed up. 
and her womb is closed and she can't do anything with it. And she's just suffering here in silence time after time after time and she wept and she wouldn't eat. Verse nine, uh, verse eight, I'm sorry. And Elkanah, her husband said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than 10 sons? See, Elkanah was probably a pretty good husband. He was like, am I not enough for you? Like, I know you want kids, but I'm saying, I believe in you and we're okay. I know I've got all these kids over here with Peniah, but I can be enough for you, can I? No, there's way more going on here. Here's the first point. Prayer helps us to deal with what's missing in life. Prayer helps us to deal with what's missing in life because we get to verse nine and 10. After they eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Let me, just, let me ask four questions at this point to kind of drive this first point home that prayer helps us deal with what's missing in life. Number one, when are you reminded of your pain? Maybe it's that you drive by a restaurant that you had a bad evening at. Maybe it's going back to your parents' house uh, for Thanksgiving. Maybe it's visiting that city. Maybe it's going uh, to the graveyard to visit the lost one uh, that you love so much. When are you reminded of your pain? Because we're all going to be reminded of it. For Hannah, it was every year. Springtime starts to come around. Late summers, when we probably think this happened, and she would have known that we're gonna to go to Shiloh. Year by year, it's gonna be the same thing. More meat for you, but no kids. Paniah, less meat, but all the kids. Year by year, I'm gonna be reminded of my pain. When, when are you reminded of your pain? Here's that, that's the first question. Here's the second one. What do you feel is missing in your life? Now, you've gotta do the work here. But what do you feel like is missing? What do you feel like if I had this, or I'm not, I'm not fully me without this thing that I feel like's missing. See, what children would have given Hannah is a place in society. It would have given her a reputation. People wouldn't have judged her. They wouldn't have looked at her oddly. And she felt like she was missing it. In other words, here's the third question. Where do you feel like you're not enough? That you're not measuring up. That you don't have what it takes that somehow your standing is lower because you're not pretty enough, you're not smart enough, you're not intelligent enough, you're not wealthy enough, you're not rich, whatever it is. You, your kids are all prodigals. Uh, you've never actually shared your faith. You don't want to tell anybody that. You don't know how to pray. You just feel like you're not enough in all these categories. Here's the fourth question, besides where do you feel like you're not enough? What are the poor substitutes for seeking God? See, what Elkanah offered, am I not enough? That's a poor substitute. What she had to do was be driven to the Lord, and she was. She took all of the grief of her heart, and she went right to the Lord with it so that she could see what it says in Psalm 34.10, which is this, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Verse 10, she was deeply distressed and she prayed to the Lord and she wept bitterly. But if, if verse 10 of chapter 34 of the Psalms is true, then what does that mean for Hannah? 
What does it mean for us to pray over and over and over again and not get the good thing? After all, we're called to be fruitful and multiply. So kids are a good thing, right? So why does she have kids if she lacks no good thing? Because somewhere in the providence and the sovereignty of God, it was good at that moment for Hannah not to have kids. And in the poverty of sovereignty of God, sovereignty and providence of God, if there's something that you lack, it is for your good, even though that thing you lack might be good. And you might say, well, Andy, I doubt that whole scenario. I don't understand the sovereignty of God. How could, how could something be good and I not have it if it says I lack no good thing? Well, Adam and Eve doubted the same thing. There's that tree. That fruit looks fine to me. I think I should be able to have it. If you think about it, even the martyrs of the faith, isn't it good for the martyrs of faith to have health and a long life? Yes, but in God's economy, they didn't. They were killed, but they still lacked no good thing because it wasn't in God's sovereignty and providence good for them to live a long life. It was better for them to be worthy of their call in martyrdom. There is a sense where we have to get to that point in prayer where we start to say, if I don't have this by faith, I'm going to trust that it's not good at this point in my life for me to have this, Lord. And I'm gonna weep over it, and I'm gonna be you know, grieving over it, and I'm gonna to go to the temple and pray over it, I'm gonna feel all that, but I'm also gonna trust you that if I don't have this, if this is missing in my life right now, that it's not good for me to have it. In prayer, we realize what we're missing. And it's a beautiful thing, actually, because when you're a Christian, here's what you have. We don't focus on this enough. But when you're a Christian, you have a theology that allows you to grieve. You have a theology that allows you to feel pain, that allows you to go to the Lord and weep and to be frustrated Uh, to weep bitterly and say, I wish I had this. I wish uh, this could happen in my life. I I feel like this is missing in my life. But God, I'm going to trust you with your sovereignty and your providence that I'm not supposed to have good health right now. And I miss my loved one terribly. But I trust you, Father, that you took her or you took him from cancer years ago, and I'm trusting you with that because I'm going to lack no good thing because I'm seeking you. I'm not seeking some poor substitute for you. I'm seeking you, God. See, when you have that theology, when you have that belief, then you can start to let go of the things of this life that you have to have it all now and, and that you have to, your life has to be complete and can be whole. No, it's okay in the Christian life to grieve and to go to prayer helping you deal with what's missing in life, to hear in prayer that you're enough because of Christ, that he's sufficient. And can I just be honest here? Most of us need to know simple language. I won't go into it, but somebody walked me through this earlier this week, and they had me vocalize to me, a younger version of me. And it was a horrible and wonderful exercise. But most of us need the simple language to know you're loved, you're enough, you're not lonely, I am with you, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you, I'm proud of you, 
All of the things that the gospel tells us over and over and over again, most of us just need those simple reminders of how much God the Father really does love you. Point number two, prayer helps us to remember that everything is the Lord's. Look at verse 11, and she vowed a vow, and she said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant, remember me, and not forgive your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Uh, that last part speaks about the Nazarite vow that uh, individuals will take. That gets a little complicated. I'll leave that. We could talk about uh, that later. Now this, let me say this, this is not a Faustian gamble. This is not just a do this for me and I'll do this for you kind of bet. This is a recognition of Hannah that everything is the Lord's anyway. And so if I am blessed with a son, if you, Father, want to give me a son, you're serving a son, then I'm not gonna be the helicopter mom. I'm not going to protect him. I'm not going to keep him to myself. He's not going to become my idol. Matter of fact, I'm going to be the Hebrew mom, and I'm going to give him to you. And I'm going to send him to boarding school with Eli and Shiloh to learn how to be a priest. I'm going to turn him over to you because everything is yours anyway. And this is a pretty astounding gospel work that's happening in her life because most of us, once we get that thing that we've been longing for, we want to protect it. Hannah recognized, if you give me anything, God, it's yours anyway. And what does this mean? Well, it means that everything is the Lord's. I'll never forget there's only a few sermons um, that I've heard that I can remember. And uh, this will be an awkward conversation for us since you've listened to me preach for a long time. But I bet it's the same with you. And I bet most of the sermons you remember have never come from me. But one of the sermons that I remember was from the famed black preacher, E.V. Hill. Kind of not in our stream uh, theologically or almost any other way. But he preached his wife's funeral. We, and you can find it, maybe, if you can find a cassette tape. I've not found it since. We used to have these cassette tapes. And, uh, and this wing, downstairs, you go down three floors, that's where the youth used to meet. And it was, all, during the week, it was an academy, like preschool, and every Sunday I had to come in at two o'clock, pull everything out. It took from then to about six to get it ready for youth group, and I would listen to cassette tapes. And then after that, we put everything back, flip it from a youth room back into an academy room, and I'd get home about midnight. For three years, I did that. But I listened to that E.V. Hill tape hundreds of times preaching his wife's funeral. And you know what his text was? Preaching his wife's funeral, which I'll never do, by the way. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he riffed on that for like a half an hour, and it was beautiful. With the recognition, I love this woman so much, I never wanted to part with her. But the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Everything I have is the Lord's. Now, if we understand this, if we can start to get that, that prayer helps us to remember that everything is the Lord's, then it inspires so much gratitude. It makes you loose-handed with your resources and with your talents and with your money. It, it makes you realize when something gets ripped from your hands in this life, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. 
Blessed be the name of the Lord. It helps you to realize that on this planet, we're merely stewards, that we actually don't own anything. And this is the hardest thing for Christians of this day and age. Because we're swimming in uh, the touting of individual rights. Nothing against individual rights, bill of rights, fan of that, fan of all rights, okay? But at the end of the day, the Christian narrative is this. You don't own anything you're owned. He redeemed you. He bought you at a price. And so now my kids are the Lord. My health is the Lord's. My family is the Lord's. My marriage, whether it's good or bad, is the Lord's. My wealth is the Lord's. I'm I'm merely a steward. That's why Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, I want to find the faithful manager, the faithful steward. Not the one who just plays around thinking I'm never going to return. But I want to find when I return, Luke chapter 12, the faithful manager who has been waiting and longing for me, recognizing that everything that I've given them in this life is actually mine, not theirs. It's a, it's a beautiful way to live. Because imagine if you're a billionaire, which is fun to do. I do it all the time. Um, Elizabeth, I, you'll never know if I'm a billionaire. And, well, there's no chance I'm going to become one um, unless one of you buy me a lottery ticket and I win and then I don't tell anybody, which is exactly what would happen. But imagine you're a billionaire and you get, uh, you have a billion dollars, you've got the penthouse, you've got the uh, house in Crested Butte, you've got the house in Indian Island and Miami, outside Miami. See, I've imagined this, I've thought about it. Uh, and you buy the yacht. $300 million yacht. Uh, and it's a little bit more of your net worth than you're comfortable with. I mean, it's almost a third of your net worth, but you can afford it because you're a billionaire. And so, you know, you go on the yacht and you invite some friends and they're just tearing it up, messing up the upholstery, not thankful, throwing glasses around, just wrecking the jet ski into the middle of it. You ask for a dinner that night and the chef says, oh yeah, we ran out of all of that, we forgot. You would be furious, why? Because you own it. You would think, I paid for this, I demand this, I've gotta have this. But it's always better to have a friend that has a boat than that you own the boat yourself, you know that, right? So imagine you're not a billionaire. Most of us can do that. But you have a friend, your best friend is a billionaire. And he says, I've gotta do some stuff in San Francisco this year, we're closing a big deal. Do you wanna take the boat for a month in the summer? At all expenses paid. You would be the best steward of it. And you would be so grateful at each turn, even though you don't own it, you're just stewarding it, you'd be so grateful and so thankful. And everything that comes to you, everything that you experience, you would say, thank you so much that I get to have, I know I have to give it all back, but thank you so much that I get to steward this for this little bit of time. That's the kind of mindset that we can have as believers. Prayer helps us to remember that everything is the Lord. And then that characterizes a liberality of our prayer life. That's what it says in verse 12. Let me go through 12 through 20. And she continued praying before the Lord. Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord. 
I am a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, go in peace, and the God of Israel grants you your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. And the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning, worshiped before the Lord. They went back to their house at Ramah. Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I've asked for him from the Lord. One of the things that um, kind of characterizes Hannah's prayer is this liberality, this freedom, just to go to the Lord. Uh, to be speaking, you know, from her heart, but moving her lips. Everybody thought she was just kind of off kilter, drunk. What is she doing? Was she just pouring out her heart day by day by day? And why could you do that? Because God knows what you need anyway. Bonhoeffer said it this way, we are privileged. I'm gonna read this slowly so we get it. Sometimes these quotes, I read them, and you're like, great quote, can't remember it. We are privileged to know that he knows our needs before we ask him. This starts to answer the question, why pray if God already knows? Why even do this whole exercise? If God already knows what I need, he already hears me, why do it? This is what gives Christian prayer its boundless confidence and joyous certainty. It matters little what form of prayer we adopt or how many words we use. What matters is the faith which lays hold on God and touches the heart of the Father who knew us long before we came to him. Genuine prayer is never good works, an exercise, or a pious attitude, but is always the prayer of a child to a father. Hence, it is never given to self-display, whether before God, ourselves, or other people. If God were ignorant of our needs, we should have to think out beforehand how we should tell them about it. In other words, if God didn't know our needs, we would have to work on the elevator speech. You know, the 30 seconds you get before the client. I've got to make sure I do this exactly right so God hears me. No, because of that, you don't have to worry about having it all kind of nice and tightly wrapped. How we should tell them about them and what we should tell them and whether or not we should tell them or not. Thus, faith which is the mainspring of Christian prayer, excludes all reflections of premeditation. The last point, and let me make this quickly, prayer allows us to live triumphantly. Prayer allows us to deal with what's missing in life. Prayer helps us to remember that everything is the Lord's, and prayer allows us to live triumphantly. If you look at Hannah's prayer, this is the only recorded prayer, it's in chapter two, and it's after she's already had uh, the child Samuel. Let me read it, 2, 1 through 10. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Who's her enemy? Penina. We know that it's named. She's named. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our Lord. Talk no more very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. Who's she speaking of? Penina. And she's dealing with her enemy, even in prayers. That's the way she's 
dealing with it. She's bringing that before the Lord. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she has many children forlorn. The Lord kills and brings life. He brings down Sheol and rises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. You see the the theme again, everything is the Lord's. The Lord can bring up, he can tear down, he can make rich, he can make poor. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts up the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor from the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he set the world. He will guard the feet of the faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness for not by night shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king, and he will exalt the horn of the exalted. So I almost did a whole sermon just on that, but you can't do both, right? And I need to give you the setting. So much there of what Hannah has learned, of who she is before the Lord, of letting not her barrenness define her, but letting the Lord define her. So I'm a good friend, uh, Rankin Wilburn, several years ago, 2018, I think it was published, uh, published an award-winning book. He writes in it, against the prevailing mindset of our day, you are what you make of yourself. That's the prevailing mindset. Union with Christ tells you that you can discover your real self only in relation to the one who made you. See, what we constantly think is I've got to go replace what's missing. I I know I'm not enough. I've got to become enough. I know I'm not good. I've got to be good. And what Rankin says is union with Christ is what defines you. That's what helps you understand and settle down your heart. You are not, you cannot be self-made. Union with Christ tells you that you can only understand who you are in communion with God and others. And that is a wildly countercultural claim. Well, how can we live triumphantly? So many times throughout Scripture, think about Sarah, think about Rebecca, think about Hannah, think about Elizabeth, think about Mary. So many times in Scripture, God uses the woman who was at one point barren to usher in hope. And there is a parallel to Hannah's prayer, and the parallel is, of course, in Mary's Magnificat. And in Mary's Magnificat, you'll find it in Luke chapter 1. Let me turn there. I think it will be uh, on the screen as well. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Let me end here. You can live in prayer triumphantly Because when Christ came, the child that was also presented to the temple, the child that was also ushered into God's service, the child that was also given over to be the priest of all priests, 
When Christ came, he came to disarm every power and authority and doubt and lie that you hear in your head that you're not good enough, that you're missing, that you're lacking, that you're not loved. He came to disarm all of those, so they have no power anymore. There's a story about the Allies flying over Europe in a bombing run, and they got lit up by the Nazis in this uh, huge plane. And when they got back, there was no explosion, even though their plane was just riddled with bullets. And they went in and they said, look, can we find out what the deal is with these bullets? We, we know they went to the gas tank. So they drained the gas tank. They pulled the bullets out, these big slugs. They pulled them out. There were seven of them in the gas tank. And in two of them, once they took them apart to see what was in there, they found out there was nothing in there except for a note written in Czech. Czechoslovakian. And they had pulled the checks in the uh, Germans had to force them to do labor to build their munitions. And in that note, once they found somebody to translate it, the checks wrote in that munition, we're doing all we can to help. And quietly, they had been building all of these munitions for the Nazis and quietly disarming them and taking out all the explosive charge. So yes, you might still feel the pain of somebody saying, you're not good enough, you're not loved, you'll never be enough, this is missing from your life. But those bullets have no charge because Jesus has disarmed all of it. So you have to listen to the gospel. And you have to go to prayer. Maybe this afternoon. It's going to be a rainy afternoon anyway. Sleep and pray. And wake up and pray and go back to sleep, that's quite okay. And say, I'm, I'm missing this. I long for this, God. And then remember, everything is his anyway. And then live triumphantly. Exalt in him, just like Hannah did. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Father, we pray. If you're just joining us, We've been going through a series on prayer. Matter of fact, we're taking all year long to talk about prayer. And this series on prayer will take us up to Easter. But the question that many of us have is this. Does prayer work for real people? I mean, you, you can see it for the nuns. You know, for the monks, for the priests, for all of those people, you know, you can kind of tell that, okay, prayer might be their thing. For the mystics, for the people that are the pastors, for the missionaries. But how about for real people? Because if you're like me, and I'm a pastor, sometimes you probably think, gosh, is, does this prayer change anything? Is it just bouncing off the ceiling? I mean, I'm literally uttering words into existence that I'm I'm supposed to believe that God himself, author of the universe, hears and will respond to. But so often it feels like just a message in a bottle that you kind of throw out there and you just hope it returns. Does prayer work for real people? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the life of Hannah. And we're going to see how prayer worked for her, and I think it will encourage our hearts. I'm going to do, if you're just joining us, we're going to do a lot of scripture reading today because we've got to get to the story. This is a little bit abnormal, but I'm not going to apologize for reading scripture. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramatham, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Joraham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Epaphrite. 
Now, just for the record, yes, I did practice that sentence. Uh, even though you go to seminary, there's still debate on how you pronounce these things. And uh, on more than one occasion, I was like, I got to make sure this is right. And I have no idea if I said that right or not. But I, I did it better than you would, I think. So here we go. <laughs> he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah. The name of the other one was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, let me just stop there. Hannah was a real person. You know, history is recorded in Scripture. This, this, it's not a myth that's just made up with uh, prototypical people. And the reason why we know that is because you would never write a myth with all of this history. There's this man from Ramathas, Zophim. He had this father and this father and this father. What they're doing is writing a historical document to help you as the reader place where they are ge geographically to know, oh, I know that family. I know that tribe. I, I knew them. My grandparents knew them. That's how the readers would have received it. And Hannah was a real person with all of her hopes and all of her dreams. That young Hebrew girl just wanted to get married, find love, start a family, just like little American girls want to as well. And this little Hebrew girl thought, if I could find somebody who loves me, really loves me, and she did. She found Elkanah. And from all testimony in the scripture, Elkanah loved her, and she loved him. But somewhere along the way, in this first paragraph, here's what we realize. Elkanah must have come to her one night and said, you know, it's not working. I don't think it's me. I think it must be you. Um, I got to have kids, though. I, I, who's going to run the fields? I mean, after all, my father was Joram. His father was Tod. His father was, is the lion going to die with me? Is it all going to be over? And I don't like this any more than you do. But there's this girl, Peniah. She lives down the street. And if we um, could bring her into the family, maybe she could bring kids. And uh, Hannah, you're still my first love. I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying here, but in this world we live in, kids are what are needed. Now, you might, you, maybe you're not a believer, or maybe you're a skeptic, which is, both of those are, are fine. We're glad you're here. And you might say, well, I thought that marriage was between a man and a woman. You know, the whole Adam and Eve thing. How about there's two wives here? Is this okay? Here's what I want to say. Not everything that is recorded in Scripture is endorsed. You should know that. Because these are historical documents. And here's the second thing. Not everything that God allows does he approve of. And so sometimes we'll see things in Scripture and we'll start to get, you know, it'll trip us up and we'll think Scripture is being hypocritical. Not at all. It's just recording what happened. They weren't willing to wait on the Lord. And now they have this dilemma. Penina is in the family. Verse 3. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all of her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave the double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. So here's the setting again, because these are real people with real situations, real emotions, real psychology, real dilemmas. 
Every year they would go to Shiloh to celebrate, which was probably, from what we can tell, the Feasts of Tabernacles. And they would travel to Shiloh and they would bring sacrifices with them. And they would take the whole group of people. And you can just imagine the conversations, can't you? Hey, Paniah, you take the minivan with all the kids in it. Hannah, you, you can drive the car behind because with all the supplies. And they get to, you know, the Hilton of Shiloh, and they say, hey, we're going to need four rooms for Paniah. Hannah, just one for you. And the, the situation, the Hebrew dad loving those kids, and he loved Hannah too. But those kids were playing around, and he would play with Penina's kids, and Penina would constantly be like, hey, Elkanah, I'm going to need a little bit more help over here. We just got done feeding. We're going to have to put them down for naps. And Elkanah saying, Hannah, you know, I really wish I, I, we could finish this conversation, but I, I got to go help out with Penina. That's the situation that they're in. And then we see verse 6. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. And as often as she went to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. So here, after the sacrifice, they would give, uh, Elkanah thought, if I give a double portion to Hannah, maybe that will help with her grief. But it was a way to kind of show that he really loved her. And yet here's Penina constantly provoking her, constantly bullying her. You can just imagine something like this. Uh, Hannah, I'm sure it's great that you've got a double portion. You know what I have? Kids. You don't. I mean, to provoke somebody is it's harsh. Hannah, I, I know that you got a double portion from the sacrifice, and that's awesome. <laughs> I'll eat the leftovers of my kids. I've got so many of them, they can't possibly eat everything on their plate. Hannah, I know you think Elkanah loves you, but something must be wrong with you because you can't have kids. God must have cursed you somehow. You're going to be forgotten, Hannah, and yet I will not be because I've got all the kids. All the progeny are coming from my line here. And it hurt Hannah, and she wept. She couldn't even eat. These are painful things. So here's the first point. Prayer helps us to deal with what we're missing in life. Look at verse 9 and 10. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed, and she prayed to the Lord, and she wept bitterly. Prayer helps us to deal with what we're missing in life. Let me ask you at this point four quick questions. What reminds you of your pain? You know, for Hannah, it would have been, we think this would have been most likely late summer. So at the end of spring, she would have been reminded, here's the time we start getting ready to go to Shiloh. Year by year, same thing, double portion, same thing. I, I get made fun of, same thing, I get provoked. But what reminds you of your pain? Is it that anniversary of when you said goodbye to a loved one? Is it driving by that restaurant where you had a fight with your spouse at? Is it going to the graveyard one more time? Is it driving by that school where you got bullied? Is it driving by that soccer field where you got cut? What reminds you of your pain? Here's the second question. What do you feel like is missing in your life? See, Hannah, she never felt like she was complete. 
She never felt like she had it all. She didn't have the one thing that made somebody reputable in that day, that made somebody worthy. And so what is it for you? What is it that you feel like in your life is missing? Uh, maybe it's riches. Maybe it's reputation. Maybe it's a good marriage. Maybe it's a, a marriage at all. Maybe it's a best friend. Maybe it's a job that you feel like is worth going to. What do you feel like is missing? Number three, and you have to do this work. I can't do it for you. Where do you think you're not enough? You're not living up to your potential. You're not smart enough. You're not good looking enough. You're not wise enough. You're not smart enough. You're not pretty enough. Where do you feel like you're not enough? Because Hannah would have felt that too. And number four, what are the poor substitutes for God? Verse eight again, if you missed it, Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than 10 sons? See, Elkanah wanted to say, look, I know you're barren and I hate that, but I've got kids and, and our, I'm fine with our love relationship right here. And he was like, I'm not. Elkanah was offering himself as a poor substitute. And so many times we're missing something in life and we will bite on to a poor substitute to kind of soothe our pain. But what prayer helps us to do is to realize what we're missing in life. As Psalm 34:10 says this, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And one of the things that prayer helps us to do is to realize that although something might be missing in your life, you lack no good thing. Because if it were for your good, God would have given it to you by now. If you wanted, if he needed for you to have it, he would have given it to you. So when you feel like you're missing something, it is okay to grieve. Here's, if you're a Christian, here's one of the beautiful things about Christianity. It creates a space for you to be able to weep. It creates a space for you to be able to say something's missing, something's not right. It creates this space for you to be able to grieve and feel the pain and feel the suffering because we live in a fallen world. If you don't have that theology, then you'll think you have to have it all now and you'll look for ways to get it and you'll constantly feel like you're missing something. But what scripture says is okay to feel like you're missing something because we are. We're not yet in the new heavens and the new earth. And so Hannah was taking all of these things to the Lord and saying, I'm going to walk by faith. God, if you wanted me to have kids at this moment, I would have them, but I don't. So I'm going to trust you. God, if you wanted me to have that job, you would have given it to me, but I don't. If you wanted me to have more money, if you wanted me to have a wife that wasn't taken by cancer, I would have that wife. I would have that situation. I would have that job. See, when we go and we come to the Lord in prayer and realize what we're missing in our lives, we can start to hear the simple words of him saying, I'm enough for you. I want, if you're just joining us, you know I tend to be fairly vulnerable in my preaching, and I don't want to be overly vulnerable at this point, but uh, my counselor this week walked me through this situation, and uh, she forced me to preach the gospel to myself, which is what I tell you to do all the time. 
And she said, what would you say to that version of Andy Lewis at that point in your life? What would you say to him? Now, you're a preacher. You know how to preach the gospel. What would you tell that younger version of yourself? Of course, the you know, tears start to come up, and I'm like, I hate you. Uh, you know, the, the good counselors provoke those kind of things. And I said, I would tell him he's enough. I would tell him Christ is sufficient. I would tell him it's going to be okay. I would tell him he's loved. See, you know what most of us need? We can do the theology, we can do the semantics and the nomenclature that come with all the theological categories, and I do not mind playing that game, but what most people need is the simple language of this. You're loved, and you're known, and you're never going to be forsaken. And Jesus has more grace and more mercy in store for you than you can ever run out of. You cannot sin your way out of the kingdom of Christ because with the love of the heavenly Father, he loves you, he's redeemed you, and he's kept you, and he always will. Number two, prayer helps us to remember that everything is the Lord's. Look at verse 11. And she vowed a vow, and she said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forgive your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. That's just speaking to the Nazarite vow. Not going to go into that. Not enough time. But here's what I want you to see. This is not a a Faustian, um, you know, kind of plea deal. Uh, What she's saying is this, everything is the Lord's. And if you give me this child, it's yours. Hannah was committing right there. I'm not going to be the helicopter mom. I'm not going to make this child my idol. I'm going to be the Hebrew mom. And I'm going to recognize that if you do give me this child, which I don't know if you will or not, if you open my womb, if you give me this child, it's yours. Because you know what, Jesus? Everything is yours anyway. And if everything is yours, then I can be open-handed with it. Here's the beauty of that. If you believe that everything is the Lord's, then we're only called to be good stewards of what we have. And that allows you to live a life with gratitude. I listen, I don't remember very many sermons. And uh, this is not going to be a fun game to play because I'm preaching. I'm sure you don't remember many of my sermons either. And that's fine. But I do remember one sermon Because I listened to it, we used to, in this uh, wing, if you go down to the bottom floor, there's a a room there that used to be the youth room, but it was a preschool room during the week. And so I would come in at two o'clock every Sunday, took me four hours to move everything out, move in all the youth stuff, set up the stage, uh, and then do the whole thing from two to midnight every Sunday for three years in a row. I'm not bitter about it, I'm just telling you the way it was. And I would listen to um, these things called cassette tapes. And they were sermons. And I listened to this sermon from the famed black preacher, E.V. Hill. My God, that guy could preach. Not in our same theological tradition. I'm fine with that. I listened to the sermon where he preached his wife's funeral. You know what the text was? The Lord gives... The Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Over and over and over, I wore that tape out. 
to hear him preach at his wife's funeral. I would have never wanted this in a thousand years. I loved her so much, but everything is the Lord's. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It allows you to live with gratitude. Look, put it this way, imagine you're a billionaire. You've got the penthouse uh, in New York City, and you've got the, um, the house on Indian Island in Miami, and you've got a place at Crested Butte. See, I've imagined this. Like, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm pretty far down the track of imagining being a billionaire. And, and you buy a, a $300 million yacht. That's a third of your net worth. You could still do it. You've got $700 million left in the bank, but it's a little bit, you're getting leveraged a little bit more than you want to, and you take all of your friends, and they just trash it. You'd be constantly anxious. Your captain runs it into another boat when it's trying to dock because they put, forget to put out things. You'd be constantly in angst, always wondering what the bill's going to be for the gas. It would be awful because you own it. But as we know in the South... It's always better to have a friend that has a boat than you have the boat, right? I don't ever want a boat, but I want a lot of friends with boats who are very kind. And imagine your best friend is the billionaire who owns the yacht and says, I've got to, do, I've got to cut this deal in San Francisco. I'm going to be out there for two months. Do you want to take the yacht for a month with you and your family? You would say yes. And you'd be filled with gratitude. And if anything gets trashed, you just turn the keys back in. But you would take such good care of it because you're just a steward of it. In this life, we're merely stewards. We're stewards of our family. We're stewards of our kids. We're stewards of our resources. We're stewards of our talents, which means in Christianity, you can be loose-handed. You can live with gratitude. You can enjoy everything that you have and you can actually enjoy everything that you don't have. Because were it for your good, God would have given it to you. Everything is the Lord's. That allows Hannah and her prayer to be characterized with an amazing liberality. Verse 12, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, and only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli told her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, go in peace. The God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning. They worshiped before the Lord. They went back to their house at Ramah. Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife. The Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. She named him Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The thing that characterizes Hannah's prayer life is her willingness to be messy in prayer, her freedom that when she's dealing with this grief and with this pain, her first response is not to try to solve it herself, but to go pour out her heart to the Lord, to trust him for what she has, to trust him for what she doesn't have, 
and to remember that everything is the Lord's anyway. In other words, it reminds us like Bonhoeffer, and here's one of the answers to one of the questions that I know you have. If God already knows everything, why should I pray? Here's why. Because it's a joyous thing if you don't have to get the elevator speech going. If God already knows, you're free to be messy and process with him. This is what Bonhoeffer says. I'll read this slow. A lot of times I read these quotes too quick, and y'all say, that was a great quote. Can you email it to me? So I'm going to prevent that. We are privileged to know that he knows our needs before we ask him. It's a privilege. This is what gives Christian prayer its boundless confidence and its joyous certainty. It matters little what form of prayer we adopt or how many words we use. What matters is the faith which lays hold on God and touches the heart of the Father who knew us long before we came to him. Genuine prayer is never good works, an exercise or a pious attitude, but it's always a prayer of a child to a father. Hence, it's never given to self-display, whether before God, ourselves, or other people. If God were ignorant of our needs, we should have to think out beforehand how we should tell him about them. See, if God didn't know what we needed and what our prayers were, we would have to like form an argument. We would have to say like we do before clients. I've got 30 seconds with you. Let me make sure I get this right. and Let me get that sales pitch in there. Make sure I have the spacing out perfectly to sell this deal. But if God already does know, we don't have to live with that anxiety with what we should tell him, and whether or not we should tell him or not. Thus, faith, which is the mainspring of Christian prayer, excludes all reflection and premeditation. It allows you simply to go to God, to process what you're missing, and also to pray that prayer of relinquishment. Everything, God, is yours anyway. Very quickly, I'm not even gonna read this text, I don't think, but prayer allows us to live triumphantly. The only recorded prayer of Hannah, we see her lips moving, we don't know what she's praying, we know she's made a vow, but then in 1 Samuel 2, and uh, I'm not gonna read through it because we don't quite have the time, but in chapter two we see her prayer, and it's a triumphant prayer after she already has the child, that God is going to be exalted, that her enemies, meaning Paniah, will be judged. And we see this beautiful prayer in chapter two. Go home and read it this afternoon, because what we see in this prayer is that she realizes she's defined not whether she has kids or not. That's not her identity. She's defined by her union with Christ, by her union with God. Uh, my good friend Rankin Wilburn wrote an award-winning book. Uh, I think it was published in 2018. Um, won a bunch of awards. And in it, he said, against the prevailing mindset of our day, you are what you make of yourself. Because that's the prevailing mindset. Those are the waters that we kind of swim in, right? I'm missing something, I've gotta go get it. I've gotta be enough, I've gotta do enough, I've gotta have enough. Against that prevailing mindset that you are what you make of yourself, union with Christ tells you that you can discover your real self in relation to the one who made you. That's, that's how you only get to the real you. 
is to realize who's the one that made you. You are not, you cannot be self-made. Union with Christ tells you that you can only understand who you are in communion with God and others, and that is a wildly countercultural claim. But it's what, if you're not a believer, it's what gives you peace and certainty and hope. Now, I just want you to think about this quickly. There was uh, Hannah who had Samuel. It did turn him over to Eli, and he became a priest, a prototype of priests. And there were so many other places in Scripture where God used barren women to usher in uh, the gospel message. Think about Abraham and Sarah. Think about Rebecca and Isaac. Think about Elizabeth and John. And you think about Mary and Jesus. Another woman who didn't have any kids who brought in the great high priest and actually 1 Samuel 2 and Hannah's prayer in a beautiful way patterns out Mary's Magnificat, that there would be this ultimate priest, this ultimate uh, king who's gonna be born into this world, who's gonna be given to this world, turned over, Mary turning Jesus over to this world just like Hannah did with Samuel so that we might know that we're loved. And what Jesus did is disarm all the powers and authorities, all the narratives that we constantly tell ourselves that aren't true. The, um, years ago, the Allied forces were flying over Eastern Europe and they just got lit up by the Nazis. I mean, the plane was just riddled with bullets and they couldn't figure out why the plane didn't explode. They landed uh, back in the UK and they said, we got, why did this plane not explode? There's so many bullets in here. And so they drained the gas tank. And they found in these big slugs that were coming up from the Nazis, uh, they found seven of them in the gas tank. And they unscrewed them to figure out, like, why did nothing explode? Seven of these hit our gas tank. And they unscrewed them, and they figured out they were all disarmed, and there was no munitions in them. And in two of them, they found a note written in Czech. And what's not known at that time was that the Czechoslovakians were pulled in by the Nazis and forced uh, to build ammunition from the Nazis. But quietly, they were taking out all the munitions, all the uh, armament within, so they were just all blanks. And in one of the munitions, there was a note that said, written in Czechoslovakian, that said, we're doing everything we can to help. We're disarming, all, quietly disarming all of these things. And that's what Christ does. He's done more than he needs to to help, but he has disarmed every bullet, every penaniah bullet that comes your way that says you're not enough, you'll never be enough, you're not good enough, you're not loved, you've sinned too much, you've done too much. All of those don't have any ammunition in them. Because you can remind yourself of the gospel story that Jesus loves you, that he forgives you, that he wants to be united with you, that everything is the Lord's, and that you can come to him and process the grief in this life, and you can allow prayer to help you live triumphantly. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Father, we pray. So much more could be said. But most of us don't live with that kind of triumph. Most of us live feeling defeated. And we don't need to be self-made. We need to remember grace. 
And Father, most of us want to own everything for ourselves. We don't want to be stewards. But if we view ourselves as stewards, we can let go and with gratitude and joy what you give us for each season of life. And in prayer, we can even grieve and process with you what we're missing. And here you say to us, we're enough. That you've given us everything we need for life and for godliness. And so I pray that even today we would do that. We process these points with you. Maybe we've never prayed before. Maybe we need to say, I've been around church, but I've never decided to actually follow God, you? I'm so tired of all these munitions, all these narratives I hear in my own heart beating me down. Father, would you, through Christ, disarm my sin, take it away, and help me to live now in life worthy of the calling that you've given us to be your sons and your daughters. Father, we offer our hearts to you. Help us where we need it. Convict and encourage where we need it. We pray in your name. Amen. Mm-hmm.